Psalm 4. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Salah. But know that the Lord has set apart the God. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Salah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. It's a very pretty reader. <laughs> so for those of you that think I'm a creeper right now, she's, she's my wife. So, allowed to say that. Um, the last time I got up and, and preached a sermon, I was a father of three. Uh, on May 25th, yeah, as you can see, uh, my wife gave birth to our son Nathan, and so now I'm a father of four. All right. Which usually gets the response of, oh, wow. Uh, there was a, a comedian, Jim Gaffigan, and to, to quote him, he says, if you want to know what it's like to have a fourth, just imagine that you're drowning and someone hands you a baby. It's pretty right on. And I can remember when we had our, our first son, Caleb, and when, he, when we brought him home from the hospital, you know that stage when they're newborns and their eyes can't quite fix in or focus or make sense of, of what's in front of them. And I used to have all these routines, and one of them was like, you know, a runway leading up to Caleb's forehead, and I would start making the kissing noise before I planted a kiss on his forehead. And so it kind of looked like this, like... <laughs> but the first time that I ever did that, if, if you've ever been around a newborn and you make a noise that startles, what's their response? You know, the flailing arms all over the place, and I wish that I could tell you that my response was, oh, I shouldn't do that again. But like all men, my response was, hey, Laura, come look at this. <laughs> and you see, there's a, a very real thing that when you have a newborn baby and you want them to sleep and you want them to be at peace, what do you do? You swaddle them. You wrap them up tightly to mimic what it was like in the womb to be nestled in the safety of something. And so when you swaddle a baby, peace. Kids with anxiety disorders, they'll put weighted vests on them now because it shows that that produces serotonin. It calms them from their anxieties. Companies now sell weighted outfits for dogs for thunderstorms. Dogs that freak out in the thunderstorms, you put this on them and the weight of being embraced by something calms them. And we do it too. We live in South Florida, which is like living on the surface of the sun sometimes. 
And we hate to sleep when it's hot. And yet, what do we do? We, we may yank the air conditioner down a little bit, but when we get in the bed, what do we do? We need to cover ourselves. We need to sense that something is covering us. And when we get one of those sub-60 bitter cold nights of South Florida, <laughs> and we get to break out a comforter, oh man, I will sleep like a baby. It's interesting that they call that a comforter. You see, the, the, the physical reality that, that when you are embraced or covered by something weighty, your body releases serotonin, and, which yields melatonin, and it helps you to sleep and to calm down. And the physical reality has a very real spiritual cousin. When we are faced with deep anxieties, when we're faced with fears, what is it in your heart that when you go to bed at night, churns your stomach? What makes your throat want to swell closed because the thought of it is so hard to bear? What weights are you carrying? And David, in all these lament psalms, his answer is, Lord, I need a covering. I need you. I need, I need a comforter. I need protection. I need refuge because I've got all these anxieties that are crushing me. And I need relief. There's not a person in this sanctuary today that doesn't know what it's like to walk with crushing anxiety. Lord, how are you going to open a door here? How are you going to deliver me? Why have you not delivered me? Are you turning your face away? Are you giving me a deaf ear? Lord, listen, help me! And David in, in this psalm today is going to take that anxiety on as he goes to his pillow at night. He's going to wrestle with anxiety and he's going to give us a blueprint for how we're to handle our crippling anxieties. If you had to categorize David's greatest sources of grief in his life, you could, you could do quite a lot of them. I mean, you could start with the fact that even though David was faithful and brave and he delivered the nation of Israel, he had to run away from a, a crazy king who was jealous of him. He spent years being separated from his family, from his loved one, hiding in caves, being hunted like a dog, and refusing to take vengeance into his own hands. He knew loneliness. He knew what it was like to be mocked. Or what about the, the pressures of trying to unite the tribes of Israel under his kingdom when just a few generations before him, they were committing genocide against one another? What did that weight feel like to bring peace to those that are warring all around you? What would it have been like for David to see his most trusted advisors and friends 
those that he shared his heart with, those that he went to for help and to hold his arms up when he was exhausted. What would it be like to see your closest friends and mentors turn their backs on you in your greatest crisis and walk away? I imagine I could, if I went through that, I could write some lament psalms. But David's greatest source of grief is found in the agony of watching his sons devolve into wickedness and death. So just imagine reading through David's journals. We find a lot of them in the Psalms. But I want you to stop for a moment and imagine David's not just some king who lived in history. He is a, he's a musician. He's an emotional guy. He, he feels things deeply. He's a man after God's own heart. Like This is a guy who's all in, who lays his heart out. And I want you to imagine what sort of grief did David experience when his firstborn son Amnon raped his daughter Tamar? How did that devastate him? What did David feel when his son Absalom then killed Amnon because David had delayed justice? What did David feel when Absalom provoked an insurrection against David and tried to kill him? What did David feel when Absalom, whom he greatly loved, was put to death by a disobedient general? In Psalm 51, we see David's grief when his son with Bathsheba dies as a result of his sin of adultery and murder. What did David feel when his son Adonijah When David was laying on his deathbed, desperate for peace, what did David feel when his son Adonijah sought to steal the throne from him? Then, even then. This guy had a lot of reasons for tears. His sons were a source of great heartache, the source of much grief. And he writes many psalms with the weight of that agony. Last week, Tom led us through a close look at the rebellion of David's son, Absalom. And sadly enough, if if you remember the story of Absalom, he, he camps out by the gates. He tries to turn the people's hearts against David, his father, the king. But I want to stop for a moment because we hear that story and we say real quickly in our hearts, oh, Absalom is terrible. Don't like the Absalom guy, but I'm going to like I, I sympathize with Absalom. I sympathize with this guy when he sees his sister suffering in the aftermath of sexual abuse, and he cries out to his father, the king, "How long are you going to delay justice? Like, do something about this." And when he doesn't get the answer he wants, he takes things into his own hands, and he puts Amnon to death. And everything in my heart goes, yes. Good. Then after he flees, he senses that he's been forsaken by his father, the king. 
And he furiously demands for the king to hear his complaints. Don't turn a deaf ear to me. Listen to me. And surely, as he's standing by the gates and all these people from the different tribes of Israel are coming into Jerusalem and he hears all of their cases, all of their suffering, surely it crosses his mind. What kind of a king could allow this suffering? And though the Scriptures tell us that David longed, his heart longed to go to Absalom, Absalom's heart only grew more intense in its hatred. And it multiplied every day until finally Absalom is left with one of two options. Do I trust in the goodness of my father, the king? Do I submit to his anointed leadership over my life? Or do I take matters into my own hands? Do I impute evil motives to my father? He's betrayed me. And do I wage war for the throne? We face those decisions every day, don't we? When we're walking through the furnace of affliction, when we're overwhelmed with anxiety, when we want to say, how long, O God? When we want to say, what kind of a king allows this much suffering? When we want to say, Hear me. Have you turned away from me? Like, have you forsaken me? We face those emotions like Absalom. And here's the thing, in the Psalms, David is going to launch those very same grievances against his father, the King, the Lord of glory. And Absalom will choose not to trust the heart of his father, to rebel, to seek the throne for himself, and he is met with utter destruction. David goes before the throne of his father and says, how long? He weeps tears. He's in agony. There's so much that's being done to him that is absolutely unjust. God, why do you allow this? Why are you letting me go through this? And do you know what David does when he's presented with one or two, which option do I take? David weeps. He launches the complaints. And he's desperate to hear an answer for God, from God. But he grabs hold of the Lord. And he trusts in the goodness of God. He has seen his path's faithfulness. And he will not let go of the Lord no matter how much his heart breaks. He trusts and he worships knowing that in the midst of that anxiety, in the midst of that crippling stress, in the midst of all that pain, that the Lord is accomplishing something. And so David clings. And we start with, David starts this psalm in a, in a very instructive way. He starts this psalm and he, he gives us a pattern after which, how, we, how do we take these anxieties and go before the Lord? And as you read verse 1, listen to two things. His boldness. 
How much he wants the Lord. He wants to hear from the Lord. It's not just, hey, hey God, it's me. I'm having some trouble. It's like, I need you. Please answer me. It's passionate. But it comes with an amazing sense of humility. Just walk through verse 1. David says, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Right out of the gates. O God of my righteousness. Hear that. What is, what is David saying here? He's saying, God, I have no basis on which to stand in Your presence. I haven't done anything to earn Your favor. In fact, remember me, I'm the guy that committed the adultery. I'm the guy that committed murder. I'm the guy that broke the Sabbath. I'm the guy that brought the, the nation of Israel a whole bunch of shame. Yeah, that's me. But you are the God of my righteousness. You've clothed me with forgiveness. You've redeemed me. My basis for standing in front of you at all comes from you, not me. It's by your grace, O oh God of my righteousness. And then he says something that's really powerful. If you're walking through the valley of affliction, hear this. David says, you have given me relief when I was in distress. David pauses for a moment and he knows, right? He's, he's going through something where he can't see the light. He can't see the open door. He can't see the solution. And he says, you have given me relief when I was in distress. I can trust that you are going to deliver me once again going forward. Why? Because you always have delivered me. You've always been faithful to me. And here's something that I love. Like that, that Hebrew word that literally, it's translated here as given me relief. Literally, throughout the Bible, it's most often translated, enlarged my heart. Like in Psalm 119, when David says, You enabled me to follow your laws because you enlarged my heart. You made my heart bigger with love for You. And therefore, I could withstand so much more. We tend to think when we pray for deliverance, when we come to all of these anxieties and stresses and fears and burdens, what do we do? We go to the Lord and we're quick to ask, God, take away these circumstances. And sometimes... God will deliver you from your circumstances. But God will always, if He doesn't do that, God will always deliver you through your circumstances. God will take that crucible, that affliction, and He will enlarge you. He will make that Something that makes you better. Something that conforms you more into the image of His Son. Something that forces you to lean more on His love rather than trying to do things in your own strength. He will turn that into your blessing. He will enlarge your heart. And the other way that that's translated is you've made room for me when I was in distress. It's, the idea is making bigger. And so, if, if you're in a season of anxiety and stress, imagine it, because man, I, I know that feeling, right? Where it seems like the whole earth 
The whole world is just suffocating you and you can't look anywhere to find a breath. It's too much. But God, You made room for me. (laughs) You took the enemies and You pushed them back so that I could breathe so that I could regain my composure, so that I could look to You. You've always done that when I was in distress. And then finally He says, be gracious to me. Well, what's grace? Grace is receiving something that you don't deserve. That's the definition of it. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. It's like David is standing before God saying, I totally, excuse me, I I totally don't deserve to stand in front of you. I don't deserve for you to be emotionally invested in me. I don't deserve an answer from you. But God, please, hear my prayer. David opens this psalm facing like brutal anxiety. And I love what he does. He starts by looking back and praising the Lord for what he's done. You have given me relief in my distress. If you you go throughout the Old Testament, when God would do a great work, a great wonder, a great deliverance, when he would lead them through the Red Sea or lead them across the Jordan into the Promised Land or defeat a mighty army in battle, what would he tell them to do? I want you to erect memorial stones or a victory pillar or an Ebenezer somewhere. And why? Why why does he tell them? For example, Joshua, when they crossed the Jordan, the Lord says, these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Why? God knows that down the road, you're going to come across some event some anxiety-inducing, crippling stress, don't know what to do with it, event in your life that makes you say, how in the world can I trust God to deliver me here? And God wants the landscape of Israel littered with all of these memorial stones where people were asking all those same questions. So that they remember, my God has always delivered me. And I can trust Him to deliver going forward. Every single person in this sanctuary needs to collect up those memorial stones. What are your memorial stones? Where can you look back on your life and say, I was in such distress. I saw no solution. But this is the beautiful thing that the Lord did for me through that. You need those memorial stones. You need to have them handy in your mind and in your pocket so that when you come to the day of affliction, when you offer up that cry, you can look at them and say, I remember that one. That was devastating. And you delivered me there on that one. Man, how many tears did I shed over that? You delivered me there on that one with my wife. Didn't see how we were going to get through that. You delivered me there. Those memorial stones are powerful. 
you can trust God going forward when you see what He's done for you looking backward. Right? And so in verse 2, David lays down his complaint against these men. Now this is a guy who's poured out his life for the nation of Israel. And now all the people are bad-mouthing him. They're, they're coming after him. They're, they're making a mockery of his reign. And he's crushed. Imagine what that must feel like. And so he says, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? You ever been there? You ever pour into somebody? You ever pour into a ministry or a business or a family or a person, whatever, and you just give and give and give sacrificially and you lay it all down and it becomes such an important, precious thing in your heart. And then the moment comes when you have to turn off that spigot just a little bit. And then they rage. Right? You turn off the generosity or you can no longer afford Or whatever it might be, a relative that then imputes evil motives to you, a son or a daughter, co-workers. Do you ever pour into somebody and they're precious to you and then you find that they are seeking to knock you out at the knees? It is a crushing, crushing agony. David is in the midst of it with his best friends, his closest advisors, his children. But then he begins to turn his focus here. He says, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. And we, if you are imagining that when you lay your head down on the pillow at night and you've got tears welling up in your eyes and the, the throat that's swelling shut because your life is so and such anxiety, and you cry out to the Lord, know that the Lord has set you apart for Himself. As much as David can say that, you can say that. You are infinitely precious to the Lord all by yourself. Infinitely precious. The Lord delights with singing over you. He hears your prayers. And He doesn't just hear your prayers. Romans 8 says that when you're so devastated by something and you're so overwhelmed that you don't even know how to pray, that the Spirit of God groans for you, enters into your pains, and offers up words that are a groaning that is too powerful for words. That is how much the Lord sympathizes and empathizes and enters in to your cries. And so when you're looking at the world who is against you and the circumstances that are against you, the almighty infinite God is absolutely for you. Know that when you lament. And that will put some things into perspective. So verse 4, David goes on and, and he says, be angry. All right, check. I can do that. Good at that. But he says, be angry and do not sin. All right, well, there, there I have a little bit of a harder, a harder time. 
Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts and be silent. Like, wait a minute, what the Bible is telling us to be angry? Well, actually, the literal Hebrew word from there is not angry. It is to tremble with rage. Tremble with sadness to be so overwhelmed by the fact that you hate injustice. You hate sadness. You hate the broken world that we live in. You long for righteousness. You long for justice. You long for things to be made right to such a degree that you tremble. But do not sin. And you're ponder. In your own hearts and on your beds, be silent. And that's kind of the don't sin part. Because if I'm angry and people are offending me and I speak, what am I going to do? I'm going to get on Facebook and I'm going to write the perfect reply that burns their eyebrows off. and Like that is going to make things worse. But there's this caricature of Christianity that says that it's like, you know, we're, we're just Teflon and, you know, you could shoot us with an arrow right through the heart and we go, but I got Jesus. Not, well, no, not. You hurt. You have heartaches. You feel the sting of betrayal and disappointment. And when things in your life do not go your way. You know, the world wants Christians to be like, our, our caricature is like we're covered in grease and things just slip right off of us. And the Lord here through David is saying, no, 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 tremble. Feel it. Wrestle with the Lord when you are in your bed. Don't just let it go. All right, no big deal. I don't feel heartbroken. I'll just pretend. Tremble. But be quiet. And then ponder in your own hearts what's going on. And that's when things start getting a little dicey. Paul's going to translate this in Ephesians. This same verse he'll quote. And he says this, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. What does he mean there? Don't give an opportunity for the devil. If you rush off, that's why David says, be quiet, be silent. When you're angry, don't act in that anger. You'll only make things worse. Or as Paul says, you're going to give an opportunity for the devil to bring division and tear things down even more. And it's going to linger. And so David then goes from this, ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent, to his instruction to us in verse 5, Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Or, as David defines these sacrifices later in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And so I want you to stop for a moment because here it seems like David has gone off the rails. No, 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 David. You don't understand. You don't understand. I'm the one. I'm the, I'm the one who's been wounded. I'm the one who's grieved. I'm the one who lies awake all night shedding tears on my pillow with my throat swelling shut. I'm the one who's being wronged. And you want me to offer sacrifice? 
Do you, I mean, do you know what a sacrifice is, David? Because a sacrifice, that's, that's actually like the symbol that you have a debt to God that you come and it's either a debt for your sin or a debt for, you know, to show your thanksgiving. And so here I am in the middle of the pain crying out, God, where are you? God, where are you? And you want me to offer a sacrifice? You want me to come with a broken and a contrite, sorrowful heart to you? You don't understand. I'm the one hurting. I'm the one that's been wronged. I'm the one that's been betrayed. I'm the one that's been forsaken. I'm the one that's been slandered. I'm the one that's been driven out. And the Lord looks to that and says, I know. I've been there. I was betrayed. I was slandered. I was driven out. I had my glory turned to shame. I had lies spread around about me. Oh, and by the way, by you. And do you know what I did? I offered up a sacrifice. I offered up the most costly sacrifice that anyone could ever offer. His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, hung on a cross as a sacrifice for you. To take all of that injustice, all of that shame, all of the brokenness of the world, He goes to a cross and He hangs on it and He agonizes. And He's betrayed. And He's forsaken. Why? So that He can clothe you in His righteousness. That when you cry up to Him, God, what are you going to do? Do you even care? God offers up His Son on a cross to say, I will bring healing to all of your heartache. I will put an end to your anxieties. Sacrifice. Offer that up. Come to Me with contrition and a broken spirit. Recognize what you owe. Don't demand a pound of flesh from your enemies. Come and experience the joy of recognizing what I've given to you. Come in the joy of recognizing that you've been forgiven, that you've been shown mercy and grace, that you, they might turn away from you, but you've got an infinite God who will never leave or forsake you, who's given you infinite inheritance is that good enough come and offer sacrifice to me and see how beautiful i am trust me to be the one to fill your longings you see when when we come to the face of suffering our instinctive question is always this one lord 
Why are you allowing me to suffer? That's what we want to have answered. We come to him and say, why? Do you love me? Are you turning your face from me? Like, why do you allow me to suffer? And if you start and end with that question, you'll, you'll be led into despair. The much better question, when you come across those debilitating seasons of life, the much better question is why, oh God, did you allow him to suffer? Start with that question. Then go back and ask the first question. But start knowing that the Lord Himself suffered for you. Why? Answer that question. Why did the Lord suffer for you? Because there was no expense. There was no length to which He would not go to redeem you so that you could be with Him forever. So that you could have refuge. So you could be safe. So that you could be His forever and ever and ever and ever. And if you go asking the first question after you've asked that second better question, oh, what confidence you can have. My goodness, you spared nothing for me. Your love for me is extravagant. And I can't, I can't explain this pain. Lord, I still want you to take it away. I don't understand it. I don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. But my goodness, you withheld nothing from me. And so like David, I'll lean in and cry and grab hold of the One who has always shown Himself to be faithful to me. And I will not let go. Because You've always given me a blessing. And so from here, David's heart begins to turn to praise. You get to verses 6 and 7, and David says this, there are many who say, he's talking about the ones who are coming after him, the ones that are slandering him, the ones that are seeking to tear him down. And he says, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Well, let's pause there. Because they're all coming after David, and what's their accusation? You're a lousy king. You're a lousy person. We want to tear you down. We don't feel like you're meeting our needs. And so we're coming after you with everything we've got to trash you. And David tees up this question. Well, who, they say, who will show us some good? And if you're like me, what do you want to do at that point? <laughs> Let me answer that question. I am the one who killed Goliath when all of you cowered and ran. I am the one who led the armies against the Philistines and drove them away and protected you. I am the one who suffered faithfully under Saul. I am the one who unified the tribes of Israel. I am the one who conquered Jerusalem and made it our capital city. I am the one who has done all these things for you. You want to know who can do you some good? I've done you some good. Are you kidding? Isn't that where our flesh wants to go? When someone comes to us and says, essentially, you're not good enough. You don't meet my expectations and so I'm going to trash you. Isn't that where we want to go? David doesn't go there. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Who will satisfy our hearts? 
And David says, "Uh uh-uh, not me. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You see, these people were coming to David with massive burdens and expectations. David, you heal us. You make us better. You do all of this. And they tried to dump their expectations on the shoulder of David. And David just, nope. You're asking me. You're trying to give me a job description that belongs to God alone. You you carry those burdens for your friends, don't we? Like, where we want to be the one who brings healing into their life and it's never good enough on our strength. Or we want to be the one who tames the hearts of our enemies. That's not our job description. Who can show them some good? Who can satisfy and change their hearts? Well, as David realizes, it's not me. If your hope is in me, I'm going to fail you up front, guaranteed. Guaranteed. I'm going to let you down. Guaranteed. Do not look to me. Don't look to each other. Don't look to the other pastors. Don't look to your spouse to be the one who satisfies. Or you will load them up with so many expectations that you enslave them and make them bitter to have to carry that load that doesn't belong to them. But seek the light of the face of our Lord. Know that He is the one who can bring healing to you. He is the one who can enlarge your heart or make room in the middle of your distress. He alone can do that. He is the only one that can satisfy or as David will say, taste and see that the Lord is good. But as for men... None of them are righteous or good. No, not one. The Lord alone answers that question. And then David turns and and you can sense like his heartache is already starting to drift away. He's remembering who it is that he's talking to and how much this God loves him and adores him and delights in him. And then David says this line, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when grain and wine abound. Now what is David asking for at the beginning of the psalm? He's coming to the Lord and he's saying, oh, how I wish these men would honor me and not shame me. That they'd stop lying. That they would stop spreading all these vain things because my heart is broken because all these men are going opposite from me. They've betrayed me. And here David has this wonderful wake-up call. What does he see? You, God, have put more joy in my heart than all of them together combined did when they had overflowing grain and wine to offer to me. So I take out my scales and I, and I think, okay, here's the grievances I came with. These men no longer come to me with grain and wine. They've turned on me. This hurts. But you... What have you withheld from me? You've given me everything. You love me beyond 
measure of even being able to comprehend it. You filled me with so much joy when I remember my salvation. And when I put these on the scales, all these anxieties next to you, they pale in comparison. And so all these things that I long for and hope for and stress over and have anxieties over that control my mind, Lord, help me to remember and take my mind off of this petty stuff, which next to eternity is petty stuff. And help me to remember my reality right now already. What I have in You. And when I do that, when I remember that you're far more precious in what you've already given me than all the things that I can hope for, well, then I can write verse 8. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, nothing on the other scale can do it. You alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And so you rehearse David's antidote for this crippling stress and and we see you need to remember God's past faithfulness to you. Pull out those memorial stones and remember what He's already done and trust that He will do it again. Remember how much God values you and loves you. That He has set you apart. That He delights in you with singing. Wrestle. Don't feel bad that you're angry or grieved. That's not like you've failed or something. Wrestle with it. But be quiet. Go to the Lord in all the different ways that you're upset that people have wronged you. Stop and ponder in your heart how you have wronged Him. And then ponder in your heart, what was His reaction? His reaction was mercy, forgiveness, love, grace, patience. That should be mine. Offer a broken and contrite spirit to the Lord. Be humbled and consider the cost of your sin. And when you realize the cost of your sin is the very one that you're praying to, Him hanging on a cross. Why? For the joy set before Him, which is you. When you realize the cost of your sin and the delight of your Savior, then your heart can start melting away those anxieties when you measure your requests against your realities. What you have already in Him. And then trust in the Lord and sleep in peace. And we started today talking about how David's anxieties, his heartbreak, a lot of them were sourced by his sons. One just gets murdered and falls after the next. In the first service, I had my two boys here, Jacob and and Caleb, flanked on either side of me. And when you read these Psalms, when you read about David, this man after God's own heart, like I'm sitting there with my two boys and I'm thinking, what if? Like how devastating would that be to lose my boo-boo chicken? Oh. 
David feels that. He feels the agony of what it's like to see his sons fall apart, desperately crying out, God, do something, do something. And David's typical lament psalms go something like this. In Psalm 22, which I'd encourage you to read today, Psalm 22, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Have you ever been there? Like, where are you, God? And these words go up to the ears of his God. And it will always end his psalms with something like this. And to Your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Stop for a moment. Those prayers went up to the ears of our God. And if you read through the Psalms, it's real easy to start going, good grief, He just keeps lamenting. There's so many of these. Where's God? Like, how many times does David have to say, How long? And it can cause you to look at David's father, David's king, your father, your king, and to say, Does he care? And that's when you have to remind yourself, you have to remember that those prayers went up and met the ear of a God who loved David so much, loves you so much, that when He hears that agony, when He hears that grief, He knows one solution. It's not a system. It's not a religion. It's a person. It's a person who hears all of those cries and all of the agony. And He comes into this world. The King of David takes on flesh. He comes into this world. He goes to a cross. And all of those injustices that David suffered, all of the grief, all of the anxiety, all of the the darkness and brokenness and everything, Jesus is going to take it upon Himself. Does God care about your prayers? Yes, He does. He is going to go through far more intense agony than any of us can imagine. Why? Because when David hears, or when God hears David's prayers, He doesn't just take note of it. He enters them. He's not a God who's distant from your hurt. He enters your hurt. He cares. And when He is on the cross, do you know what Jesus utters? He takes up the Psalms of David. And the Psalms of David become prophetic. For David, they were his fears. For Jesus, they become his reality. What does Jesus cry from the cross? About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. And what does He say? He says, hey David, you remember how you felt when you feared that? Mine. It's my reality. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as he hangs on the cross, as he's pummeled under the wrath of God to pay the justice that David longed for, his king takes the justice upon himself. 
and the wrath of God falling from His Father's hands to pummel and pay the penalty for all of that sin. Jesus on the cross, if anyone could have ever hurled an accusation against the Father, it was Jesus. But what does He say? When He is under affliction, when He's walking through the valley, what does He say? The same words that David said, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, He breathed His last. All of your prayers go to that God who spared no expense, who went the farthest limits to redeem you from your grief and anxiety. And three days later, after He had breathed His last and tasted death and conquered sin, God, those very same hands that poured out the wrath into which Jesus committed His Spirit will raise Him up from the dead and exalt Him at the right hand of God the Father and give Him authority over all of heaven and earth and death and sin and suffering. And He will come and with those hands He will wipe away your tears and He will put an end to all of those things that we go to our beds and we suffer through. That is our God. And when you see Him on resurrection morning, I love this painting. What is, what's the title that Jesus comes at? David, I know that you have this, this littered history with all these heartbreaks of your sons, but let me tell you, the title I will take when I come to put an end to your suffering, I am the Son of David. I will heal even that hurt. And you look at the people that are flanked on both sides of this painting, and all these people during their lives agonized. Lord, I don't want to live anymore. There's Elijah. Lord, I don't want to live anymore. Well, there's Moses. How long, O oh Lord? There's David. Weeping prophets. John the Baptist questioning all these pains and griefs. Here he comes out of the, the tomb, rolled away, death and everything dealt with. And all of them, I know this is true, that on that morning, the saints in heaven looked down and, and knowing all their griefs and pains, saw them all conquered and bowed and praising the Lord. And there's David, the third from the left, kneeling down and offering up his crown. That is your reality. Jesus not, doesn't just conquer your anxieties and the subject behind your anxieties. Jesus enters them. He owns them. He relates. And He overcomes. And Jesus, you have a pretty incredible comforter. Wrap yourself up in Him. And sleep tight. Father, Lord, I thank You so much for Your goodness to us. Lord, that's something, anxiety, I think is my least favorite emotion. Fear. I hate it. It's, it's crippling. And so, Father, I ask that, that when we do face these seasons, that You would enlarge our hearts and help us to remember who You are. That rather than seeking to do things the way of the world, that You would remind us how much You love us. That we would come before You in praise and worship and be able to offer up sacrifices because You did so for us. 
And that at the end of all of our laments, when our head's down on the pillow, we would remember that You have given us far more joy than any of our prayer requests ever could. Lord, You alone make us to dwell in safety. You're an amazing God. You spare no expense for us. Help us to remember Your character as we walk through these seasons. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.